back to our next episode of Catching Carbon. We're in a new setup. We've got uh, a big tree over Jeff's head, just taking his CO2 emissions and, and sequestering them. So, Jeff, thank you for making this a carbon neutral podcast. Je- Jeff, super, Jeff super is your contributions. Jeff is not a fan of the new setup. Uh, Jeff's doing his part. <laughs> I don't baby. know what is going on. I feel like we're in a like a hotel closet or something. Well, we're but not. Uh, we're on air. We'll keep we'll keep playing until yeah we have a new sign. That's it, beautiful it, it over there. Look today, at that. We've got Phil DeLuna with us from Deep Sky, and Phil is the chief uh, carbon scientist, and also he leads their engineering program. Um, And before coming to Deep Sky, Phil has just been in the climate tech space, clean energy space, um, working with uh, the Canadian government, working with consultants, McKinsey, and he has a really impressive background, um, his PhD in material science. We're super excited to have you on, Phil. Uh, Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Excited to learn about what Deep Sky is doing and plans to do in the coming year. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's I can already tell it's going to be a blast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, you know I I'm looking forward to this conversation because I, you know I, we're we're always interested in people that are are doing and and not just you know talking and you guys are raise money and developing and investing and and you know going after the targets that have been set for 2050 and and beyond. But just you know I, I think this is really just going to be a let's just listen to Phil and, and see what Deep Sky is doing more than us uh, talking so for everybody else you don't have to really listen to us for once yeah, <laughs> no, it's a total monologue to absolutely and, um, we're going to tee you up yeah. and just let you roll but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Deep Deep Sky was founded interesting founder story for sure uh, spin off like I said taking the village and doing parts that, yeah. that, that is Deep Sky's story yeah absolutely um, yeah no pressure monologue time right no so <laughs> Deep Sky um, the story of Deep Sky begins with our co-founders, Fred Lalonde and Yost Overkirk. Uh, they founded a company called Hopper. You may have heard of it. It's a $5 billion plus tech company in the travel space. Uh, they are a competitor to Expedia, a little rabbit app that you may have used to book your travel. A few years ago, they started offsetting the emissions of their customers by planting trees. They planted 30 million trees over three years. They thought they were doing a great job. They went to go do PR about it, and they were getting criticized by climate journalists and activists who were saying that they were greenwashing. So it forced them to look into climate a little bit further, and they realized two things. The first is that you don't need a climate degree to see that the IPCC models are likely um, wrong. (laughs) The real-world warming that we're getting is far greater than we actually um, have predicted. And if you look at historical emissions, we're on track for much worse warming. Um, and um, a lot of people don't realize that there's actually a time delay between maximum warning, warming and emissions. So the warming that we're experiencing today is from CO2 that has accumulated in the atmosphere from 10, 15, up to 50 years ago. Uh, even if we were to completely shut off the taps and no longer emit anything, hunt for our food and ride horses everywhere, we would still have about 10 to 50 years worth of baked and warming um, to come. So that was really scary thing, number one. Uh, and the number two thing they realized was that planting trees is not enough. We actually have to remove carbon dioxide mechanically from our air and from our ocean. We have to do both of them at the same time in order to um, have a livable planet, period. And so they started Deep Sky. Uh, at first, um, Deep Sky, they were looking into the market, understanding how to make the most impact, and they realized there was a huge gap and what our, our sort of innovation is actually a business model innovation. We are the first technology agnostic project developer focused on scaling technology. And what do I mean by that? In every other clean tech vertical, solar, wind, nuclear, whatever, you have technology developers and you have project developers. And they are different skill sets and different companies. Panasonic builds solar cells. They're not the ones building the solar project in your backyard. 
that's someone else. Um, so why should that be any different from carbon? And when they looked around at the marketplace and, and the landscape, they saw all these amazing startup companies that were developing new technology, but they kept hitting into a wall. Where are they going to store the CO2 after they capture it? And how are they going to get the clean energy to fuel it? And so they started Deep Sky to solve those problems and to do it in Canada. And I'll tell you why Canada is particularly interesting. One, we have an abundance of renewable electricity. In Quebec, where Deep Sky was founded, the grid is 98% renewable through hydroelectricity. In BC, it's 98% renewable through hydroelectricity as well. Manitoba is like 99. So Canada as a whole has a very clean electricity grid. The second thing is we have incredible geology to store CO2. In um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Western Canada, these are provinces where you could literally reverse climate change. You could capture every single ton that CO2, of CO2 that humanity has ever emitted in the atmosphere and store it underground in Western Canada. At the same time, in Eastern Canada, we have all of this incredible mafic and ultramafic rock potential where you can do ex-situ mineralization, in-situ mineralization. All of it is not well understood or known yet, but that's what we're going to do is we're going to figure that out. So our business model is very simple. We generate carbon credits and then we sell them to the voluntary carbon market. That's it. And the way we do that is think of us like an oil and gas company in reverse, right? Oil and gas company extracts fossil fuels. They burn the fossil fuel to extract energy and the CO2 goes in the atmosphere. We take CO2 out of the atmosphere. We use renewable energy to purify and liquefy it. And then we put it back underground where from whence it came. And just like an oil and gas company, they're not necessarily the ones building the technology themselves. What they do is they partner with others. They license from Honeywell or UOP or they buy things from Schumberger or a broad range of different companies that service that sector. So if carbon removal is to become the trillion dollar industry that it needs to become in order for us to avoid the worst of climate catastrophe, we also need to evolve into that model, into that industry. And we think we're the first, hopefully, of many that are going to be focused on project development. Um, so that's a little bit about Deep Sky. That's a little bit about the founding story. We have a unique model. I'm happy to talk about all of that, how we select uh, technologies to partner with. The, I know you have some questions on carbon credits and what yeah, you no, do there. I, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I don't think we talked much previously about the numbers. You know, give us some numbers. I mean, I know like a, a Jack, uh, John Dewar has done a good job of summarizing some of these. There's all sorts of different institutions. Everybody's got different numbers about how much carbon we, we produce, but what really to, to maintain or to, to, to not exceed that 1.5 degree of temperature change even by 2050, what we have to do. So how many gigatons a year do we need to both remove or eliminate from all of these uh, other other outsources? And then what is your objective uh, as a, um, you know, from, from Deep Sky to, to solve for that? What, like what percentage do you think you can get? Yeah, it's a great question. There? So humanity emits about 40, 37 to 40 gigatons, billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every single year. And to get to net zero, um, it's becoming increasingly clear that reductions are not enough because we keep failing and missing our reduction targets. And so we actually have to go net negative in order to make up for that balance. Um, I, give, I have a five-point plan to get to net zero, and I'll tell you what it is. I'll share it with your listeners now. Step one is to protect what we have. Stop tearing down the Amazon to make beef. Step two is renewables everywhere as quickly as possible. We're already on that way. Solar and wind are cheaper than many forms of, other, of electricity and fossil fuel generated electricity today. 
but we need more capital investment and deployment into that space. Uh, step three is electrify everything. Once we have all those green electrons that we need or that we get from solar and wind and nuclear and everything else, we need to electrify our economy, That everything that can be electrified, heat pumps in homes, electric vehicles, etc. Step four is to decarbonize hard-to-abate sectors that are difficult or impossible to electrify, agriculture, steel production, cement, all of the things that we need for our quality of life that we're not going to go without as a species, we still need to find ways to produce those things. And we need to do so in a way that is uh, low carbon or no carbon. And then finally, step five is capture carbon. Both point source from all of the emissions for all the things that are hard to, to abate and also from directly from the air in the sense of actually removing CO2 from our uh, atmosphere and from our oceans um, that's the step. Those are the steps, and the amount of effort and the amount of gigatons that we reduced are proportional to that. So we can, you know, cover about half of our emission reductions by protecting what we have, and then about a third of it from electrifying everything and tackling hard to beat sectors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As time goes on, and we continue to miss our targets, the role of carbon removal continues to become more and more. So. Right now, the best estimates from McKinsey and the IEA and IPCC is that we need about a gigaton, a billion tons, one to three billion tons. Um, so between five to 10% of worldwide yearly emissions today, um, we need that much amount of removals by 2030. Um, I take the view, and I think a lot of uh, Deep Sky takes the view, that um, we're probably going to need far, 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 far more than that because of where we are as a society and how slowly we are in decarbonizing. And we also take the view that because of this temperature delay or this time delay between emission and temperature rise uh, and this baked in pipeline warming, um, which you can look that up, the literature is starting to realize this as well, as well as all of these uh, tipping points and runaway effects that unfortunately the, the amount of CO2 that we need to remove if from the perspective of getting back down to 320, 350 parts per million, by the end of this century, by 2100, we're talking about 800 billion tons. 800 billion tons, um, which is insane. Total, wow. Well, and that yeah. is insane. And 800 gigatons, right? Yep. And we're talking about right now, at least technologies that we're familiar with, that Deep Sky's working on, direct air capture, which I believe our audience is relatively familiar with by now. We've talked a lot about it, especially yeah. in, in the United States. Um, but direct ocean capture, now that's something that's starting to get some buzz, generate uh, some news, uh, but it's probably fairly new to our audience and we are in a unique position where uh, Tomco, uh, we're providing CO2 solutions and one of those solutions is pH control through the use of CO2. We sequester CO2 into water, we make carbonic acid through Henry, Henry's Law under pressure and we're able to um, create a mild acid uh, to, to help with pH control. Municipalities, desalination plants we've done a lot of work and it got my gears turning i would imagine that at atmospheric pressures the ocean is absorbing some sort of amount of co2 and then it gets saturated and what do you do with that how does that natural process happen when it can take no more co2 and to hear about this direct ocean capture technology got me really excited because we deal with this on the day-to-day -day. Yeah. can you talk to us specifically about direct ocean technology and also with uh Direct air capture being kind of a challenge to scale, and we're talking about scale. Everything you're saying is, you know, billions of tons of CO2. What are the obstacles to scaling direct ocean capture? Is it going to be 
easier? Is the path forward clearer than it is with direct air capture? Is it a both and? But we'd love to understand. Yeah, absolutely. So first, let me explain why we need direct ocean capture at all, right? Um, let's take it from first principles, like as you said, Henry's law. If there is a natural equilibrium between the air and the ocean in terms of the amount of CO2 or any gas mixture, if, it, if CO2 can dissolve in water and it can dissolve in air, which it does, then there's going to be a natural equilibrium and transfer between both. Uh, to, to put it even more simply, there's a reason that our coral reefs are dying and that the, we're seeing ocean acidification. And it's not because we're pouring acid into the ocean. It's because we're putting CO2 into the air, and then the CO2 in the air goes into the ocean, and it creates acidity, and that's why coral reefs are dying, because they thrive in higher pH conditions, in more basic conditions. So if you want to reverse that, you have to remove CO2 from the ocean, right? So the entire, the, the topic of direct ocean capture is, uh, let's say, for example, we only do direct air capture. If we only do direct air capture, and we get to a point where I think we need to, where we scale it up enough that we're actually moving the PPM down to instead of 400, let's say we get to four, 400 and then 380, whatever it may be. For every ton of CO2 that we remove from the air, there might be half a ton or 40%, 0.4 of a ton of CO2 that will outgas from the ocean into the atmosphere to maintain that equilibrium. We've been putting and increasing the, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere so much that it is saturating the ocean, and therefore if we remove it from the air, what's in the ocean will outgas back out. So we have, to, we have to do both. And another interesting thing about the ocean is that it naturally has a buffering capacity, right? It naturally takes in CO2 from the air. Um, and it, what a lot of people don't realize is that the ocean is actually the world's largest carbon sink. There is more carbon stored in the ocean in the form of inorganic carbon, dissolved carbon, etc., uh, than all of land forest mass, all of fossil fuel reserves, all of any other source of carbon combined. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, because I was, you kind of answered my question there a little bit, but so I'll have a follow up question. But I, I was, as you're talking through that, I was thinking. If if the ocean is saturated or at equilibrium today, can we gain anything? You know, we can reduce the carbon in the atmosphere today, but there's got nowhere to go. It's already at equilibrium, right? But is you know, so the first question is: A is the ocean already at equilibrium? Which I would imagine it's been that way for millions of years, uh, if that's the case. Uh, and B, like, so the real question in that is scalability. I mean, if 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 you know, if the ocean's ninety five percent of the Earth's surface. That's a whole lot, you know, to get that back to equilibrium. Are we better served? And, and the answer is always all of the above, of course. But are we better served trying to capture it out of our atmosphere rather than try to, to boil the ocean? Yeah, per se? yeah, it's a great, um, yeah, it's a great in that question. regard. So, right? A couple of things. First, the um, concentration of the CO2 in the ocean is about 50 times, 40 to 50 times greater, depending on the temperature, uh, than in the air. It is. Okay. Um, so one you, you have less of a penalty you have to pay from a, a, a separation standpoint just because the concentration is higher. Second, um, in terms of scalability, you know, we move a lot of water as a species all the time. Desalination plants, uh, water treatment plants, all of these sorts of things. We know how to pump water around, um, uh, hydroelectricity, all of these sorts of things. So if we can utilize all of this infrastructure to move water, the biggest issue with scalability is actually on the pumping energy required to, to move the water um, from the ocean and then back into the ocean. And, and this touches on how these technologies work. So basically what happens with direct ocean capture 
is uh, water is um, separated. Some technologies, for example, Captura, which we're partnering with, what they do is they take water and then they use um, an electrochemical process to separate uh, sort of acid and base, right? And then uh, they extract the CO2 from the acidic stream um, simply because of the, the difference in the basic, or uh, the difference in um, uh, pH. Uh, and then from there, they mix it back together so that your outfall is a slightly more basic um, uh, water. And it's that basic water that when you're increasing the pH of the ocean that allows the, wa the ocean to increase its buffering capacity and draw down more uh, CO2 from the ocean. Now, why is this uh, a, a more interesting approach than enhanced ocean alkalinity, for example, which is the same thing, but rather than pulling in CO2, you just put base into the water? Because we can actually measure the CO2 molecules within the battery limits of the plant. And with things like enhanced ocean alkalinity, where you're playing with the pH of the ocean directly, it, there's lots of modeling that has to go on. You don't really know how much CO2 is actually being drawn down. Um, is there appropriate mixing, etc.? But with direct ocean capture, we can measure every molecule of CO2 that we're pulling from the ocean and therefore increasing the buffering capacity of the ocean to suck in more CO2 from the air. Um, but yeah, to, to, to your point, uh, the scalability is an issue. And of course, it's something that we have to think about. But what, what, when we take a step back and we, uh, it seems like a lot of, 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 of water to move around. But if you think about the amount of water that is being moved today by humanity, uh, and if you could even leverage that capacity and that infrastructure and then build on top of it or with it, then certainly I think there's a way to, to, to scale this. Interesting. I, I'd like to get back to your list. I liked your list there as far as, uh, you know, what the five, five kind of pillars there would be that you need to, to do. I want to go back to four and five. You said, you know, decarbonize hard to abate industries. Obviously, that's that's critical. Um, but and, and identify either carbon free or low carbon products output. Um, but then the next one is carbon capture. Now, I, I kind of like the combination of it. And I want to kind of get your perspective on that. Like capture the carbon, yes, but rather than sequester it long term, um, you know, is there a way to capture those carbon and put those carbon molecules, those non-fossil based carbon back into use and have a circular economy? Do you guys focus on that at all? Or, or do you, when you're thinking about that, do you think those are two different yeah. things? You know, decarbonize this industry capture so, the rest uh, of it. Me personally, I think that's absolutely something that we need to do. Like imagine a world where the carbon that we, in all of the plastic in our phones or all of the fuels that we need for, uh, for long haul transportation, imagine a world where that, the carbon in those molecules come from the air rather than from fossils in the ground. Of course, it, it makes a lot of sense. From a utilization perspective, yes. Um, carbon utilization is important for us to maintain our quality of life as a species and to do so in a circular way to not make the problem worse. But as Deep Sky, we are only focused on sequestration. Why? Because from a scalability perspective, there is no one product that you could turn CO2 into that would match the scales of the amount of carbon that we have to capture from the atmosphere. You would immediately flood that market and make that product worthless. Even concrete, which is the largest man-made substance uh, on earth, um, even that, in, by volume, even that we, we can't sequester a, a, all the CO2 that we need to from the air into concrete because the volume percentage is low and because we're not building things fast enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from a fill as a, we need to decarbonize the world and we, it's a toolbox and there's no silver bullet, it's a silver bookshot, 
yes, absolutely, we need to do carbon utilization. And in fact, it sh that should be the, the basis. I can imagine a world in the future where any product that is made has to be from either biogenically sourced CO2 or direct air capture source CO2 or carbon rather than fossil fuels. And that fossil fuel use could be completely outlawed. Um, I, I could imagine a world where that's the case. But from a Phil as the chief carbon scientist and head of engineering at Deep Sky, um, our mission is solely focused on capturing and sequestering CO2 so that not only do we not make the problem worse, but we're actively reversing the damage. Yep, no, interesting. So let's jump over to the, the business model a little bit. You talked about the carbon credits, and that's obviously the model. Where Who, who is purchasing these credits and maybe give us a quick you know, synopsis of the credit market. Um, you know, uh, is, cause there's not really much of a credit market in the U.S., uh, but I know European countries and Asian countries do have more of that. Uh, so, yeah, kind of just give your synopsis of where you see this market. What you, What is your ultimate business model in this regard and kind of who's signing for up sure. for these projects? So when we talk about carbon markets, we have to differentiate between the voluntary carbon market and the compliance carbon market. I'll start with compliance first because it's not what we're selling into and it's easier to explain. It is exactly as how it sounds. It's compliance because it's run by a government entity. The European trading system, the EU ETS, emissions trading system, um, is a, an example of a compliance carbon market where that carbon credit, I think, has reached close to 100 euros uh, per ton of CO2. Um, there are many more companies and countries that are um, uh, launching compliance carbon markets, cap-and-trade systems. California has a cap-and-trade system, actually, in uh, collaboration with Quebec on the provincial and state level. Uh, and so these are more mechanisms to deal with emissions that exist today. Um, again, uh, maybe to take a step back and, and kind of describe, when you think about um, the analogy of, of carbon capture, the difference between point source and direct air, I'm sure you've heard this or someone else from your podcast has said it, the world is an overflowing bathtub. The bathtub is CO2 molecules. What, ha what do you do when your bathtub is overflowing? You either turn off the tap or you pull the plug and, and take the water out. Um, point source capture and emissions reduction is turning off the tap. It's making sure that the CO2 doesn't enter into the atmosphere, that your water doesn't um, go into your tub because it's overflowing. The, uh, removing the plug and then letting the water drain out is carbon removal. We're taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it underground. Why is this distinction important? Because the compliance markets are primarily, the, compli the credit, co compliance uh, credit markets are primarily focused on emissions reductions, on, on turning off the tap. They're a market mechanism to incentivize corporations and heavy emitters to reduce their emissions by deploying carbon capture technologies or other decarbonization measures. Um, the voluntary carbon market, which is what we're selling into, is the other thing. It's, it's removing CO2 from the air. And who would buy this? Why would any company buy a carbon credit on the voluntary carbon market? These are companies that have high scope three emissions, but very limited control on how to uh, address those scope three emissions. These are companies that have made net zero commitments and potentially prematurely and are realizing that they're gonna have a hard time meeting them and also realizing that they, they they, there is an obligation for them to meet them either from their shareholders or actually from the government in the United States with the SEC's climate uh, uh, disclosure. You can no longer hide and say you're doing something when you're not actually doing something. And then when you look at the stock market and the multiples, oil and gas companies are trading at multiples of one. That, that's it. So it's clear that the investment is retrenching away from heavy emission industries. And if you're an organization, 
that wants a, a sustainable future, that wants to get to net zero, all these sorts of things. You have to have a real plan with interim targets. If you're an organization, if you're a corporation that has the government as one of your key customers, then you better have a climate um, uh, uh, plan because the government is going to start and governments everywhere will start mandating that their suppliers have plans to get to net zero or making real efforts to get to net zero. Uh, and, and, and so the, not only are they procuring, like in this uh, the sense of the uh, uh, D- Department of Energy's $35 million pilot program, not only are governments starting to procure carbon credits, but they're going to focus on their scope three emissions by forcing their suppliers, which is every corporation, to meet their net zero targets as well. So who exactly are these folks, right? You have um, tech companies, um, a bunch of publicly announced um, carbon credit, voluntary carbon credit market purchases have come from Amazon and uh, Microsoft and uh, Shopify and Stripe, and, um, and these are in the tech side. You have banks, JP Morgan. Why are they buying credits? Because they're interested not only in it for addressing their scope three emissions, which is primarily the portfolio companies that they have little control over, but they're also probably in, interested in resale. Banks are, you know, the, the wait. Banks I, aren't I, trying to I, save I, the world. I mean, they're going to make money. Maybe I shouldn't be too honest in my opinion of banks on the podcast, but really, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, in your opinion, are 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 some of these companies and are banks buying up the credit market to be able to control that opinion, market yes. down the road? When, yeah, when it's more than $100 or 100 euros per ton? the supply and demand yeah. imbalance is... Hey, whatever. Yeah, Somebody's no, funding it, that's fine. The thing is, the supply and demand imbalance in the carbon credit, in the voluntary carbon credit market right now, is so wide that um, I actually anticipate, even though the costs are very high, as the costs go down because technology gets better and we deploy more, I actually think prices will either stay where they are or even increase in the short term because the supply-demand imbalance is so great. Yeah, well, I was actually just that was my next question. Um, you know, where where is what's the right price per per ton for a carbon market? You said a hundred dollars a ton or hundred euros a ton right now is a market, but you know we've got in in the U.S. we've got forty five Q, which is paying eighty five dollars a ton to sequester. Like, you know, where does it start to make sense? Where do you you know? Obviously, it's going to be up and down in peaks and valleys for for a decade. But where do you and your your grand vision crystal ball see see pricing going? <laughs> So I'm going to give you multiple answers <laughs> because uh, the answer, the real answer is no one knows. But I'll, I'll tell you and I'll postulate um, a few things. The first, and I'll start with the darkest answer, which is the price doesn't matter because eventually things are going to get so bad that governments are going to pay for this one way or another, whether that's through taxes, whether that's through something else. Their pressure is going to be ratcheted up on corporations and governments to act because there's going to be a horrible, horrible event, climate catastrophe, loss of life, loss of economic tragedy uh, that's going to force people to act. I hope that it doesn't get to that point, but eventually the price won't matter. Similar to how the price didn't really matter for COVID vaccines or whatever, at least initially. Uh, That's answer number one. Answer number two, from a sort of academic, socioeconomic uh, lens, the, the price should actually be the social cost of carbon, right? If, if uh, the, the cost on our society for every ton of carbon, whether that's on healthcare, whether that's on um, defense, on immigration spending, on all of these different things, uh, economists can actually um, calculate what that cost is. In Canada, it's about $270 per ton or something like that. The, so if you have a, a solution that is lower than the social cost of, car- of, of, of carbon, 
then that is the price that you should be aiming to get below. Uh, not $100, which is just an arbitrary number that the industry decided to peg on, but the true uh, alternative cost of the alternative situation, which is we continue down this path, there's more economic destruction, there's more health and all this sort of stuff, and that cost can actually be calculated. It's a social cost of carbon. Uh, and then, and then finally, the third answer, which is the realistic answer, the not the gloom and doom one, not the idealistic answer, but the answer of what I actually think is going to happen, um, you're going to see costs being driven down through deployment to the $100 per ton year range, and that's where lots of people will want um, the 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 cost to go. But in the short term, costs will probably be around $500 to $1,000 per ton of CO2. Uh, on average, CDR.FYI, which is an incredible uh, nonprofit organization that tracks a lot of these deals, um, released uh, data recently, and the average cost for direct air capture is around $700 per ton of CO2. Uh, these are small volumes. This is um, uh, you know, industry first movers who are trying to jumpstart a, a, an entire sector. So our, not every company can afford to pay $700 per ton of CO2. Uh, most companies are in the fifty to sixty dollars sweet spot of like what they they are willing to pay for, um, and so what I think is going to happen is a basketing approach where you have um, resellers of carbon credits uh, provide a portfolio where you have a, a large portion of it being sort of uh, less permanent, cheaper, nature-based solutions that are in the two dollar range, and then a very small premium sliver of direct air capture, mechanical removals, direct ocean capture at very high price points. But then when you level it out as uh, in a portfolio, it, it comes to a price that um, the mid-market, you know, the Procter & Gamble's, the Nike's, the, um, all the other companies in the world, not these uh, big tech companies and banks, uh, the mid-market can afford. And when that happens, uh, as time goes on, the, the costs of direct air capture and direct ocean capture will decrease, so the price of that will decrease. You'll see a larger and larger portion of your portfolio uh, skew towards mechanical removals and a lower portion of that towards nature-based solutions so that you have increased robustness, transparency, and permanence in your portfolio. Um, I think that's how the market is going to evolve in the next few years. Um, but uh, so you know, I started off with a scary one. I told you the idealistic one, and that's the, the realistic one. Oh, well, so you know, thinking about that, how do we actually get there? You guys have announced a lot of partnerships as of late, and we're talking about those that are buying the credits, but who are you partnering with to enable the deployment of this technology? Uh, a lot of it's been under wraps. Feels like Deep Sky is kind of coming out of stealth mode and opening up these partnerships one by one. Uh, maybe you can't speak to them all, but we would love to understand who's working to make this a reality. Yeah, absolutely. So our, we're very unique in our business model, right? Which is uh, from first principles, if you're trying to build a company that is project developing carbon removals, and one of the biggest risks is technology, how do you de-risk that? You do it by potentially looking at a portfolio approach. If you have all these different technologies, you don't know which one is going to win, and none of them have really scaled, and the ones that have haven't scaled to their full potential, why would you just pick one technology pathway? So our, our philosophy is we won't. We'll pick them all. We'll try them all, and we'll continue to try them until we find the ones that work. So that's why we're building what's called Deep Sky Labs. Deep Sky Labs is our testing and validation center where we have one location for air, one location for ocean. We are going to be bringing 12 different direct air capture technologies and companies to Deep Sky Air. 
and we're going to be bringing 12 diff five different direct ocean capture technologies to Deep Sky Ocean Labs. And we're going to test them and validate them side by side so we can get a fair apples to apples comparison. In Canada, we have all four seasons so we can see how they work in very hot, humid days in the summer to very cold, dry days in the winter, benchmark them against one another and understand how they operate. The best technologies that we identify from Deep Sky Labs, we then will commit to and scale for our commercial facilities. Um, and the idea is that we can share similar things like the balance of plant, compressors, condensers, liquefaction units, transportation, storage. Um, one of the things that we're doing that's unique is that we are building and maintaining and operating our own storage infrastructure, whether that's uh, um, deep saline aquifer storage or in situ mineralization, and in the short term partnering with those who are doing ex situ mineralization. Um, so we've been coming out to market with a bunch of different partnerships, um, a, a few uh, Mission Zero, a company based out of UK doing electrochemical CO2 capture, Airhive, another company based out of UK um, doing um, a fluidized bed mineralization uh, in a, a fluidized bed reactor, both of which are going to be deployed in um, uh, at our Deep Sky Out Labs site in September. Um, we've announced partnerships with uh, ReCarbon, with SkyRenew, um, uh, with uh, Captura, with Aquatic. Um, we've announced partnerships with Climeworks on, and an MOU on to do, explore deploying um, commercial scale facilities. We announced a partnership with Svante to look at um, uh, underground sequestration in uh, Quebec and understand the potential of that. Um, we've announced partnerships uh, with Isometric to do um, protocol development for uh, uh, MRV on uh, direct air capture to geologic storage. Um, We've announced partnerships with Carbon Atlantis, with Greenlight, two other direct air capture companies. Um, those are, those are, are based in Germany. Um, and we have, I'm probably missing a bunch because we have many more in the pipeline. No, that's, that's, a, that's outstanding. All right, so we'll just put you on the spot. This is a horse race. Who's your favorite right now? Who, which technology is just jumping off the page that's really advanced? This is why we need to have Deep Sky Labs. We don't know. We don't know. I'll, I'll tell you this. Let me tell you how we pick these technologies. How do we find which partners to, what's our selection criteria? Number one, they all have to have a pathway to low energy intensity. We are targeting 1,000 kilowatt hours per ton of CO2 because in the future when everyone's driving around their Teslas or have their heat pumps, the competition for those green electrons are going to be super fierce. Number two, we're looking for technologies that can be entirely electrified. If your technology requires high temperature, high grade process heat that you can normally only get from a, an industrial complex, then that limits our deployability. We already have to manage renewable electricity and storage and find the interlay of that geographically. What more if we have to find high-grade temperature process heat? And we sure as hell don't want to burn fossil fuels in order to do any of our capture, so that's off the table. So it has to be electrified. The third thing is we're looking for technologies that have a simple supply chain, meaning they do one thing really well, which is capture CO2. Some technologies produce a bunch of acid. As a project developer, how are we going to get that asset to market? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to sell it? Are we going to have to remediate it? So we're looking for technologies that just capture CO2 and have very simple feedstocks or a limited number of feedstocks and ideally no byproducts or very simple byproducts to deal with. The fourth thing we look for is modularity and scale. You can scale things in two ways. You can size it up in volume and make something really, really big, or you can mass produce and number it up. So we're looking for technologies that inherently allow itself to be sized up or can be mass-produced and mass-manufactured very quickly. Uh, and then the f f final thing, the fifth thing, which has nothing to do with the technology, is the team. 
Our, our CEO, uh, Damien Steele, he used to lead Omer's Ventures, which was a $3 billion venture capital fund of the Ontario Pension Plan. So he knows a thing or two about finding high-performing teams in venture. And he, he does a lot of work in understanding and, and testing our partners on what is their readiness from a team perspective um, and whether they, are, they can actually deliver what they say they will. 17 technologies. Yeah. That's... All being tested. <laughs> That's crazy. This requires uh, a lot of coordination. I would imagine it requires uh, a lot of hands in the cookie jar from your team. So last question to wrap is, what is that timeline to validate these 17 to make your final criteria selection? Yeah, great question. So Deep Sky Labs is going to be evergreen in the sense that, well, we have 17 technologies now. As soon as we know that one works or doesn't, we rip it out, we open the pad up, and then we put a new technology in because we think that the innovation technology curve is so steep and there's, we're talking to one to two different new companies every week. We've spoken to and assessed over 80 different direct air capture, direct ocean capture technologies to date. We visited about 20 of them in person. Um, and so the, the, the innovation curve is continuing to grow. The timelines. Uh, we're starting operations in the fall of this year for Deep Sky Labs. We, as soon as we have any sense that this thing can be project finance and is scalable, we are going to start deploying and raising um, in commercial facilities. At the same time, we're exploring with partners who are at a larger scale, potential commercial deployments at the same time. Like told you about uh, our MOU with uh, Climeworks. So the, the answer is we're trying to do everything everywhere all at once. We're trying to build Deep Sky Labs at the same time as we're identifying storage locations, um, uh, leasing land, and getting uh, offtake agreements with renewable developers and virtual PPAs and all of that kind of stuff. So for our commercial facilities, and as we continue to learn and build Deep Sky Labs, there's so much project development work that needs to happen anyway for our commercial facilities, which we're doing at the exact same time. We hope that by 20, the end of 26, the start of 27, we will start construction on our first commercial facilities, if not before then. And our grand vision is that we need hundreds, thousands of these things. So we want to start um, designing and building them like data centers where you have a set basis design. You can plop them down directly on top of storage, drill a well, get it done. Um, and in the long term, you know, build a small modular reactor next to it so you can literally just deploy this everywhere. And the reason why we think the scales and the costs for direct air capture and removals will come down faster than point source capture is because you have the opportunity to do this and mass produce on one basis design. In point source, every single deployment is bespoke. Every flu stack is different. Every connection point is different. So you're doing so much design engineering for the first time, and it's not something that you can necessarily take and then put somewhere else right away. With direct air capture and direct ocean capture, we can do that, and we will do that. Oh yeah, that, like, but I'll ask one last question because that, that's all fascinating. It's probably going to be a very impossible question to answer, but. What's the runway here for financing? Well, you know, at, at you know, on average at scale, seven hundred and fifty dollars a ton for for DAC, but you're only getting a hundred dollars a ton. So you're you're upside down for quite some time on this while you're getting them to scale, testing all these technologies. This is a huge, huge, huge investment. I'm sure you have plenty of financing up front and going, but how long do you think this is going to take, and and how much? total investment do you really need in all of this to keep this thing going? So one of the things that makes this possible in Canada is the Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage Investment Tax Credit, the CCUS ITC, which is a 60% rebate on any cap capital expenditure on direct air capture. 
So we've taken a bit of a separate tone than the 45Q in the States, which is a production tax credit. And by being a CapEx upfront tax credit reimbursable, that helps to project, that really helps to build a project finance and capital stack. So now instead of it costing a billion dollars to build a plant, it's only gonna cost 400 million. And then we're gonna fill that up for the first few plants um, with non-dilutive funding, public-private partnerships. Uh, we might have to raise some venture uh, equity uh, and, and sell equity in order to raise that money. But then we're gonna be looking at infrastructure investors. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the one, there are lots of investors, whether it's BlackRock or uh, Brookfield or others that have started uh, developing their own climate funds uh, and those are the ones that we're going to be uh, targeting as well. Ultimately, we're willing to give away all of the economics for the first two plants, or first few plants, because we believe so much that as soon as we prove this out, and as soon as we build the playbook to build these plants at scale, that the flow of capital from pension funds and institutional investors that are looking for returns is going to be so great, uh, like nothing that you've seen before. The reason being is that there is no end to the deployability, theoretically, right? Like all, all of these other things, if you build a bridge, you can only build so many bridges, solar cells the, and solar projects, the, the um, returns are getting squeezed to almost nothing. Most infrastructure investments are in your high single digits um, when they used to be in the mid double digits or even, uh, so we're, we're developing a new investment class that has deployability and, and outlook to capital investment flows for decades to come. Um, so I'm not uh, to to be uh, to be frank. If we can if we can figure out the first few plants, if we can get across that threshold and and prove commercial viability, I have I have no worries at all about uh, project financing. It's a hockey stick after that. It's really really a J curve, right? You're 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 got to go down. You're gonna lose for a while, but once you can find that market, boom. But that's great. Yeah. And where can yeah, they buy credits yeah, exactly. from you today? So my team, um, we are we are Canadian based. You can find us online at www.deepskyclimate.com. Um, you, you can find me online everywhere. Just Google Phil DeLuna <laughs> um, on LinkedIn, on the website, wherever. My email is phil at deepskyclimate.com. Reach out. Uh, on, on the purchasing, actually, so... Uh, uh, a little confidential information for your listeners, but we're active. We're we're very close to pre-selling all of Deep Sky Labs offtake for the next ten years, um, and 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 so there there may not be an opportunity to get in at that stage, but for our commercial facilities, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we learned a ton. Yeah. You did a great <laughs> job with the monologue. And <laughs> no, you're yeah you're. Voice your 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 passion your commitment to all this is uh just i mean that just bleeds through so yeah, uh, what you guys are doing are really impressive finding strong teams i think uh they've done well with you I know. we're still working <laughs> on finding a strong team i got between me him and lily i don't know we get actually we got lily. that is a, that is an ask <laughs> we're still um, working on we are always looking for people to join our team um we're we talent is the one thing we have because we don't build technology we are our people so uh, if you know anyone, any one of your listeners out there that want to go make a difference, uh, please reach out to me. Great. Right. Thank you so much. I'm part of Deep Sky. Uh, Ketchum Tarwood, appreciate having you all. Thank you so much. Best of luck to your endeavors. Appreciate it. Thank you.